Hello, and welcome to your second podcast for Witches in Popular Culture. I am Jane Barnett here as your host, and today we're going to have an opportunity to talk about the crucible a little bit later on, but we're going to start with some definitions. This week is called The Whiteness of the Witch, and that particular title is based on chapter 42 from Herman Melville's tome, his very large book, Moby Dick, or The Whale. And chapter 42 is an exploration of the color white. And it was really through dramaturging and working with this play, uh, it was an adaptation obviously of the novel, that I came to fully appreciate the cultural relevancy of the color white and so many other colors. But White, of course, in the United States and in many parts of the West is understood to be virginal, innocent, good, while black is understood to be a color that is negative. And that's not true everywhere. And certainly the color white in many parts of the East, including many countries in Asia, is understood to be a mark of evil or foreboding or even associated with demonic forces. And that's just a good sort of reminder and, and place to start for us, because I'm going to call into question a lot of things that we might otherwise take for granted. I'm going to start with the Adler reading. And uh, just the first part of it, uh, we're going to try to account for the whole part of it by Wednesday, but I only asked you to read the first part for Monday today. And I want to go through some of the words that Adler takes to task in drawing down the moon. I'm going to start on page six if you're following along. And at the top of the page, she says, and this is a pretty important moment, she says that this religious mo movement of people who call, who often call themselves pagans, neo-pagans, and witches is only partly an occult phenomenon. So there are two things in that sentence that I want to point to. The first is that she's recognizing this as a religious movement as a religious uh, phenomenon. And that's key to our working definition in this class of what we mean when we talk about witches in a sort of um, uh, sense of reality, whether that's true on stages or on the screen is another matter entirely. But the reality is there are people who, uh, who practice a religion that they would uh, call themselves witches. And then a couple of lines down in the next paragraph on page six, Adler says, most people define it, and here she's talking about the word magic. So most people define magic as superstition or belief in the supernatural. In contrast, she says, most magicians, witches, and other magical practitioners do not believe that magic has anything to do with the supernatural. And there's a footnote here that if you follow at the bottom of the page, she points out that in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word magic is defined as the pretended art of influencing the course of events and so on and so forth. So there are two things here as well, right? Um, the notion that it would be connected to supernatural or something that is beyond the natural world as a sort of common understanding of the word magic that witches do not typically share. And I think more importantly, the Oxford English Dictionary, couple of words at the very beginning of their definition of the word magic as pretended. And there's almost a way in which it begins to resemble, you know, 
David Copperfield or some kind of uh, stage magician with a sleight of hand that is uh, meant to trick you into believing something happened that didn't, Um, a trick of the eye. But that's not what the kind of work that witches who are religious want to do. And she gives this story of the of the coven that she visited and worked with in Colorado. And this guy, Michael, who was a leader there when they couldn't find the fishes. And she says that he, he said, magic is simply the art of getting results. And really by page eight, we have her definition, which is a couple of, in the second paragraph, a couple of uh, lines in magic is a convenient word for a whole collection of techniques, all of which involve the mind. In this case, we might conceive of these techniques as including the mobilization of confidence, will, and emotion brought about by the recognition of necessity, the use of imaginative faculties, particularly the ability to visualize in order to begin to understand how other beings function in nature so we can use this knowledge to achieve necessary ends. In other words, magic is... is really a a way of controlling energy and controlling intention. And that is is something that you see in a lot of different uh, spiritual practices, including, for example, yoga. Um, But then uh, we also have a couple of lines down from that. The definition that we get from Aleister Crowley, um, that It is, magic is the, quote, science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will, end quote. So that's, again, kind of the same definition, but a little bit cleaner, perhaps. So um, the, the word magic, then, I think, if we understand that it has to do with a concentration of energy, um, an intention setting, a, a way of refocusing and reseeing a problem so that it can be solved, then I think we can potentially move forward with understanding that the word pagan is, as we had discussed last week in our uh, discussion section on Wednesday, pagan is a word that for centuries has meant someone who is not Christian or in particular began to understand it people began to understand it as meaning someone who is a godless person or an unbeliever here. I'm quoting Adler. And it's often associated with hedonism, as she says, but pagan for her and pagan for Renee and me in this class is meant to be a designation of someone who is a polytheistic follower Um, to quote Adler again on page 10. Now at the beginning of that first full paragraph, I use pagan, she says, to mean a member of a polytheistic nature religion, such as the ancient Greek, Roman, or Egyptian religions, or in anthropological terms, a member of one of the indigenous folk and tribal religions all over the world. And that's a pretty broad swath, um, but it is uh, effective when we think about what folks are trying to signal when they call themselves a neo-pagan. It's typically one of these kinds of larger groups of people. And so this really does lead us to why it is that we have a certain kind of definition of witches in this country as, as Adler takes us through. By page 11, she's explaining, for example, this is actually the bottom of 10 and into 11, um, the way in which most people think of witches as 
someone who belongs to the Wiccan religion, sometimes known as the craft. And as she says at the bottom of page 10, followers of Wicca seek their inspiration in pre-Christian sources and that they consider themselves priests and priestesses of an ancient European shamanistic nature religion that worships a goddess who is related to the ancient mother goddess in her three aspects of maiden, mother, and crone. And then many craft traditions also worship a god, da 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 so what's important here, I think, for us at least to begin with is, again, that notion that not all witches would call themselves Wiccan, but that the the popular culture conception is, in fact, connected with that religious practice. And um, that typically does have uh, two members who are sort of to represent one male presenting and one female presenting to help represent the god and goddess um, of of earth. Now, the word witchcraft itself, as she sort of unpeels, has all of these different possible roots that might mean something like wise or wisdom, um, but it could also come to mean to bend or to turn. And um, I, I really appreciate the fact that she um, leans into this latter definition that perhaps the word witch does come from this idea of turning or bending because that is connected with the concept of will and magic as we have defined it so far. But I really appreciate the fact that she takes a minute to really unpack what she means by religion because I think this is where we get stuck a lot of times when I try to uh, redirect a conversation about witchcraft to to incorporate the possibility that those practicing might follow a religious path associated with it. And as she says at the bottom of page 11, I use the word religion broadly to refer to any set of symbolic forms and acts that relate human beings to the ultimate condition of existence, cosmic questions, and universal concerns. And the issue, of course, is that most of us now think of religion in the dogmatic kind of sensibility, and that isn't going to help us when we think about religion as as it's being used to refer to neo-paganism or to witches. It's more like what she says on page 12, that neo-pagans look at religion differently. They often point out that the root of the word means to relink and to connect. Again, an interesting connection to yoga, right? Yoga means to yoke or to join. And that sort of notion of religion as connecting or relinking is about making connections between the universe and human beings. But of course, the notion that there would be a difference between the spiritual and the material or the sacred and the secular is usually anathema, is usually sort of against the instincts of people in the neo-pagan tradition itself. Um, and so finally, I think it's important to, to recognize uh, the sort of definition that she brings in at the bottom from Harriet Whitehead um, in an article on Scientology, science fiction and the occult, uh, makes the point that contrary to the popular assumption, most occultists have an intellectual style, a process of sorting, surveying and analyzing and abstracting. And one of the hallmarks of that style is in fact the lack of dogmatism. And that can be a little confusing as a student because it what it, we're basically saying is within this idea of religion, there are going to be so many variances that, in fact, what will be more common is that something will be uh, 
will be unique rather than that it will be the same. That being said, I think we can kind of move forward, I hope, with some of these definitions and and I'm going to put them up again. So I'm going to juxtapose them right now to some other important definitions that are in the field of uh, anti-racist training and, um, you know, deeper uh, looks into critical race theory um, grounded in the desire to understand anti-Black racism in particular. And here I want to take a minute to, to A, to recognize that I am a a cis white woman. I'm not a person of, of, of color and I don't have the lived experience to, to really back up some of what I'm talking about. And so I rely upon and I cite a number of black women who have inspired me, especially this summer, and I'm going to name them. Uh, Kamara Phyllis Jones is the basis of a lot of what we'll talk about specifically today in terms of the framework today. And she is a medical doctor and also a, a doctor of philosophy. So she's got some serious doctorate cred to her name, um, but used to work for the Center for Disease Control. And part of her job was and has been connecting medical malpractice and medical practice uh, with racism. And so it's fascinating what she has to, to share. And uh, in a similar vein, in some ways, uh, is a scholar I studied with over the summer, Loretta Ross. Loretta Ross has written a lot about reproductive justice um, and racism and uh, has a book coming out about the what she's calling the call-in culture as opposed to a call-out culture. So talks a little bit about cancel culture, but also in particular, what she uh, termed the course that I took was about white supremacy in the age of Trump. So really sort of a since 2016, what has white supremacy or anti-black racism looked like in this country? And then the final person I want to give a shout out to is Tiffany Stewart, who is an actor, who a professional actor who has worked all around the country and perhaps the world, I don't know, but is, is, uh, grounded in, in New York City, at least was when I was studying with her. Um, and her work is more specifically about how to make uh, anti-racist theater and how to recognize racism as it is working within the theater. So I've taken some time to acknowledge those uh, scholars and artists, because again, I want to be clear, I am learning still. But I, I think that can be useful um, because my sense of um, astonishment at many of the things that I think we have taken for granted might be something that you share. It might not. But I want to start with some basic words that Kamara Phyllis Jones, Dr. Jones, as her students and her audience typically would call her, as Dr. Jones uh, has outlined in her very famous speech. And I'll go ahead and link that to our Blackboard so you can see the person herself because she's fantastic, a great educator. But in particular, she takes some time to really sort of unpack the words race and racism so that we can kind of zero into what it is that we're actually talking about. And one of the reasons this is useful, I think, is that we have gotten to a place in our country, especially, but, you know, it's been going on for centuries uh, where we have come to understand race as something that might even be biological, that it is certainly in different 
time periods, we've had scientists claim that there's some kind of quote unquote genetic or even natural connection between uh, our understanding of that person's race and what that person's um, body uh, might be able to do. But importantly, as Dr. Jones would tell us, race is social. Race is a social interpretation, now I'm quoting her, a social interpretation of how one looks in a race-conscious society. So if our society is valuing race as highly as ours does, then even if you want to believe that you somehow have magically escaped this, by the way, you haven't, but, but okay, uh, if you want to believe that, what she wants to point out is that you can't, <laughs> that it is the society um, that is making some of these larger decisions about race for us. And we'll get to this in a minute, but it is frequently invisible to those who have privilege that we, and I mean, white people don't always see it because in fact, we are not the victims of it the survivors of it. So what then is, is racism? And, and of course, racism is the, the belief system that makes it possible to, to, to give worth to people differently based on this conception of race. And she gives this incredible story about going to a restaurant and sitting with her friends and seeing that as she glances at the door of the restaurant, seeing the sign that says open, and that it occurred to her after a moment that, of course, on the other side of that sign was the word closed, and that there were probably people outside of that door who wanted to come inside and eat at that restaurant who, in fact, were seeing the sign that said closed. And why is this important? Because it helps to reinforce how racism works. In other words, the people inside the restaurant might not notice that there are even people outside the restaurant at all. And they might not even acknowledge or in some cases know that there are two sides to that sign, that there are people for whom that sign says closed. But outside, the people standing outside definitely know because they can see the people inside. And so they see what's happening inside of the restaurant, but they can also see the sign very clearly saying closed. And that doorway is so important because of where we are listening to this right now, because some of us are on one side of that door and some of us are on another side of that door. And of course, there are a lot of other isms that do this too, right? And that's important information that we'll consider in another week uh, more specifically, but uh, I don't mean to suggest that other things don't exist. I just mean to suggest that right now, uh, in order to kind of make sense of the whiteness of the witch, we need to really dig down into what race does in this country, especially with racism. And following Dr. Jones, I would suggest that racism is a system. It's, it's, um, it's something that is structural. It's something that is institutional. And therefore, it's not about whether someone's good or bad or 
um, if they are ill psychiatrically or not, you know, I mean, that's actually been suggested, you know, oh, it's not someone so's fault. Well, okay, yeah, in some ways, like, there's a lot of things that are happening to make that possible. But it the point is that racism isn't about on an individual basis, a character flaw. It is a system of power that creates opportunity for some and denies it for others and assigns value differently based on race. So that system of power then creates, I think what perhaps we might immediately think of as the disadvantages of people who are on the outside, those people who see the closed sign in the restaurant example. But the part that we almost never think about as much, and by we, again, I'm talking white people here, but perhaps some folks who are listening to this who are not white also feel this way because we forget in this society to also account for the way in which racism gives others, the white folks, an advantage, an unearned privilege by virtue of being white. And that piece can be a sticking point for a lot of people. It has been one for me. It's that feeling of discomfort, though, that I would, again, really encourage you to try to embrace if you are feeling it because it is a place of growth. And it's super important, especially for things like this. The problem has been that we have come to understand that there's two categories, that there's disadvantage and then there's normal, that the people inside that restaurant, that that is somehow the norm, instead of naming what it, what it is, that it's actually been given an advantage by virtue of being on the inside. And so that's part of what we mean when we want to look at racism as a system as opposed to something individualized. But we also want to think about, as I mentioned already, that it's structural and it's institutional and in particular in the United States. Um, we really actually can't think of this particular country without uh, contributing so much of the, the, the creation of the wealth of this country based on, of course, colonization, but also racism. This particular inequity that was based on the institution of slavery that has given, and here I quote Dr. Jones, differential access to opportunities and goods and services. And really it has been, and here I quote her as well, it's a brilliant sentence. It says so much, the coerced usury of unpaid labor to build our country the coerced usury of unpaid labor to build our country. And that's actually how we've come to absorb and uh, accept the quote unquote normal connection between race and class that we expect to see poverty in neighborhoods that are predominantly black or immigrant based and that we expect to see uh, advantages from those who are wealthy and also who are white.
So there are other kinds of racism as well. Dr. Jones will say, you know, that there's also personally mediated racism or interpersonal racism. This is what we have been seeing ad nauseum in the media and with police brutality, uh, decades, well, centuries of, but especially especially in the 20th century, the um, abuse and um, and disparaging ways that physicians treated and treat patients of color versus white patients, including, but um, not limited to forced sterilization. So this is um, perhaps a little bit more recognizable because we look at the personal or interpersonal or personally mediated racism as something that is an act that is done to somebody. Somebody did something to somebody based on the color of their skin. And that's something we can call out perhaps and recognize on that level, but it doesn't operate ever without that system in place that makes it, makes it possible. And then finally, we're going to return to this later. There is internalized racism, which is is really the most horrifying of all. It's it's where black people absorb anti-blackness and it's basically turning that in on oneself, the racist belief system that there's a difference in value, that those opportunities don't belong to a person because of their race. So there are, of course, ways to combat this, and part of it has to do with calling it by its name and recognizing it, and that's part of what we're starting with this approach to the class today. Um, but as I mentioned before, the, the way that we tend to look at it is to look at, well, what then is blackness? But I want to switch that focus for the latter half of our podcast today. And instead of thinking about what is blackness, I wanna think about, well, what is whiteness? And how does that potentially connect to what we understand as a witch or witchy behavior? And I wanna use the example of The Crucible. I asked for you to take a look at the film that I linked. It's the 1967 television film. There's also a really fun and useful video that has an interview with Arthur Miller, the playwright of The Crucible. I also linked that on our lessons page. But let's take a quick break. This is a long one, I know. This particular podcast has a lot to cover. It's important material. I hope you'll stay with me and we'll come back after the break and pick up with The Crucible and whiteness. <music> Devil, sir. You beg me to make 
So we're back from a little bit of a break, and uh, we just heard a clip from the film that I've asked you to review for Wednesday's discussion of The Crucible, the 1967 television movie. And this clip is um, around minute mark 22 in, in the sort of um, scope of it, where Tichaba finally appears. And so part of what I thought would be useful for our continuing conversation, especially with the framework of the whiteness of the witch, would be to kind of take a look at both Tichaba and Abigail as some examples that can help us further understand this. To put it in context, those of you who are perhaps not aware, although I think that would be unusual, uh, Arthur Miller wrote this play, The Crucible, as a way of exposing and raising questions about the Red Scare that was happening during the McCarthy era of the 50s. And he, in the interview that I point you to in the lessons as a possible extra thing to look at, he talks about how how intense it was, the look, the, the sort of hunt, as he called it, for leftists that happened in the United States after... World War II, and especially after the Rosenbergs uh, were killed, were were executed for spying in 1953. And there's this true way that the United States, it's a little interesting to look at today, but that the United States is, um, is deeply aware that Russia will do basically anything it needs to do to get our secrets. And once they get the information for the atomic bomb, it becomes a really terrifying uh, moment in history for these two superpowers, the United States and uh, the Soviet Union. And so in particular, um, he Arthur Miller talks about reading what he calls a sketchy book, but that's kind of cute. Uh, the sketchy book that he wrote, uh, or rather that he read, was The Devil in Massachusetts. And it basically was a, uh, a telling, again, of the Salem witch trials in 1692. And he wanted to figure that out for himself, so he went and took a look at all of these records. And it was based on those records more so really than the book, he would say, but that he he wrote The Crucible. Um, and, and he said that, you know, when it premiered, the critics did not receive it very well, in part because the metaphor he was making equated witches with communists in a way that didn't, didn't traffic, that didn't work. Because, of course, in the 1950s, and, you know, arguably today, people would tell you adamantly, some especially, that communists are real and that they are, in fact, a true threat. Um, 
but then they would say that witches are a figment of the imagination or are, you know, they are uh, not real because of course, as we see happen in the crucible and in so many other plays, people are accused of witchcraft, but there's, there's, there's very little likelihood that they actually did what they were accused of doing. And therefore witchcraft itself doesn't exist. And being a witch is a metaphor and not a real thing. But then there's Tichaba. Now I, I wanted to take a look at that moment when Abigail calls out for Tichaba, where she's basically kind of caught in a moment of admitting that there was perhaps something in the in the cauldron, uh, a frog was in the cauldron, and of course, you know, Eye of Newt comes to us from the Scottish play, right? And there's this understanding that witches must be working with those little woodland creatures. I find it hilarious, um, but in any case, she she realizes that to the men in the room, that's a sign that she's in fact a witch, and she could be um killed for this and so she begins to scream tichaba tichaba she's the one who made me do it and uh you know no i didn't drink the blood but tichaba wanted me to and she did and da, 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 and of course they bring tichaba in so who is tichaba this is a person who appears in the actual records of the salem witch trials so this part of it is based in fact, there's a lot of this that is what is, um, of course, Arthur Miller's conception is the love affair between Abigail and, and John, or the sex affair, if you prefer. But Tichaba existed and did, in fact, um, make a confession, although it was most certainly something that was expected of her and indeed as an enslaved person, arguably she was forced. She had no real choice. We know that Tichaba's last name, as it were, um, in other words, in the documents, she is listed as Tichaba Indian and that she was married or common law married to someone named John Indian. Uh, this has led people to debate whether or not Tichaba is, you know, uh, a person who is of African descent or is black, or if she is a an Indian, and if so, what kind of Indian? Um, there's evidence suggesting in the actual files for the for the hearings of the Salem witch trials. There's evidence that suggests that her um, owner, God, I hate that, um, Paris, that he basically got her from Barbados. And that has led a lot of scholars to say that then obviously she has to be uh, black. Um, but of course, it's also important to realize, to recognize that there was... Um, there were exchanges of Native Americans, so Indians who were on the land before the settlers tried to take it from them. Uh, while they didn't try to enslave the Native Americans here in, in the States very frequently because they were afraid of them, they did actually trade them for African or Caribbean uh, people. And so that trading of individuals means that in Barbados, it would in fact 
actually have been possible. It would have been rare, but it would have been possible for Tichaba to have come from Barbados and also be Native American. But why does this matter? Because in recent scholarship, especially in the 21st century, the the way that the field has sort of moved is is to embrace her multiracial background because of course she like so many other enslaved people before her was likely on some level the product of some kind of relationship between uh whites and in her case possibly both indian and black quote unquote races and here we're sort of beginning to circle back to our earlier conversation because Tichaba is right at the crossroads of these words, is she not? Because we've got the question of whether or not she's a witch, if she performed magic. And then we also have the question of her race and how that would have given her different value. And we see that in the history, the fact that after there was an attempt to uh, give compensation to the people who were who were um, accused of witchcraft in the Salem witch trials. There was a, a way of sort of circling back that was never offered to Tichaba, and in fact, she was uh, her her so-called owner uh, would not pay her bail, and so the way that she finally got out of jail was that somebody paid. I think it was something ridiculous, like seven pounds. And there's no record of where she went after that. Um, there's an assumption that her husband went with her, John Indian, but she had a child, Violet, who stayed in the family with the Paris family and became their domestic helper. And uh, in fact, was so much a part of their family, so to speak, that um, upon the sort of death of the Paris family estate, part of the estate was willed to her to Violet Indian, the daughter of Tichaba. But Tichaba and John, we never, we the history loses track because that's that happens all too frequently in the case of this country's history with enslavement. But I think the other sort of place to ask ourselves is if witchcraft is this um, uh, using of intention to change the circumstance, the sort of acknowledgement of what's going on in nature and the sort of shifting gears to use one's mind to get the best possible result, then arguably both Tichaba and Abigail performed witchcraft in the moments of their confessions, in their moments of in the case of Abigail, accusing others and moving the blame away from herself. In the case of Abigail, of course, her desire to get rid of, literally, Elizabeth. And as problematic as the play is, The Crucible, and it is deeply problematic and certainly quite patriarchal in its view of all the women in it, there is an interesting agency that Miller allows both Abigail and Tichaba to have, obviously Abigail much more so than Tichaba. But in today's world, I'm taken by the Karen-ness of Abigail, of how she 
in fact, operates in some ways in this sort of meme that's been going around um, since quarantine and and this Karen Cooper person who called the the cops on Christian Cooper in, in the Central Park in New York. And this sort of identification of this trend of white women calling the cops on black people, especially men, and that long history, of course. And there's a way in which Abigail does exactly that, right? It's not the cops, but it's the best that you can get in 1692. You don't have cops. <laughs> I mean, you, you have um, the sort of the people of the town and what they believe, which is, as you can see in the play and any history that you read, saturated in this very strict ideology of Christianity that comes back to the Puritans. And, and that's interesting to think of Abigail as a Karen. And so we're wrapping up now. I'm starting to come to the sort of full circle. And I want to do so by taking a look at the letter, an open letter to Mary Daly written by Audre Lorde in eight, I'm sorry, 18, I wish, in 1979. And if you haven't taken a look at this, I urge you to do so. One of the most incredible writers, bar none, Audre Lorde. But the way that she very carefully kind of deconstructs what Mary Daly had written in this gynecology. This is a very important book within the field of feminism overall, but it's one of these moments that helps define the central problem in American feminism, uh, which is the assumption of whiteness. The assumption of whiteness, which is sort of our big problem as a, as a country, this notion that it's normal to be white and everything else is abnormal. And as Audre Lorde says, to me, this feels like another instance of the knowledge, chronology, and work of women of color being ghettoized by a white woman dealing only out of a patriarchal Western European frame of reference. And she goes on to talk about the ways that the gods and goddesses that Daly calls upon are from the European, the Western tradition, and, and that she doesn't acknowledge the long and, and storied history of Africa and, and Asia that are connected to gods and goddesses as well. And part of this is so important because as she, Audre Lorde, continues, when radical lesbian feminist theory dismisses us, it encourages its own demise. So Mary Daly was writing from this lesbian feminist radical perspective, but she had excluded women of color, um, whether purposefully or not, Lord continues by saying, this dismissal stands as a real block to communication between us. This block makes it far easier to turn away from you completely than to attempt to understand the thinking behind your choices. Should the next step be war between us or separation? And this is really, sadly, uh, continuing even today. This, um, this sort of co-opting that white people, especially white women, do of, of Black women's labor in particular, but 
of black people's labor overall. And we see this in the in the movement, the Black Lives Movement, which is, you know, uh, we've we've seen people get credit for that who are uh, who are white, and that's you know a, a real misunderstanding of the roots of that movement, and uh, a sort of whitewashing, a literal whitewashing of it as well. So I urge you to take a look. We'll circle back to that. I, I wonder what Audre Lorde would say um, about this moment in the play that I'm drawing your attention to. And you can see if you continue in the letter that there is a response from Mary Daly to Audre Lorde as well. And so as we look ahead to Wednesday, I'm asking that you take a look at the crucible. Maybe you take a look at the secondary video that has Arthur Miller, but that the whole time that you're doing so, you do so with an understanding of the definitions that we've discussed, but maybe also asking yourself about this kind of archetypal moment between Abigail and Tichaba and the sort of the question of also how, how racism is based in a social construction, but so is our understanding of witchcraft insofar as there are those who believe that, you know, the only way that we have witches is when someone designates someone else in a false way, that there are no real witches, that witches don't actually exist. And that is a, a way of, of, of changing the value of undervaluing these people, these witches contribution to society. And I guess my question for you is, what, if any, connections might there be between the definition of witches and the definition of, of how we have handled race? Is there any benefit to holding these two to, to each other? And what does it mean, especially on a stage when you know, the, the way that we're designating a, an evil witch, for example, is to paint her face green. As we look ahead to questions of the Wicked Witch of the West and Wicked with Elphaba, you know, I understand that's not exactly the same as a, as a race, but I think there's potential critical thinking to be done by asking the question and trying to sort of unearth what it what it produces when you do ask that question for your 333 word response. And another way to approach that would be to say, um, you know, what's happening between Abigail and Tichaba that, that makes sense in today's world, especially with this sort of lens of the Karen, the phone call, the, the sort of calling out of someone arguably because there's recognition that this person is double marked, that we can call them a witch, but we also know that they're a person of color, that they are an enslaved individual. And so therefore they are valued less. So that's a lot, it's a lot to cover and it's pretty heavy, um, but uh, I'm excited to see what you have to, to say about all of this. And as a reminder, you'll just log on to Critic K-R-I-T-I-K dot I-O. And then you, 
if you haven't done so already, you should register and therefore you'll have your email, your KU email, and that's your sort of login and then your own password that you develop. And once you get in, you should see our course Theater 380, um, 26182 is the sort of particular course number. You just click through and you will see that assignment uh, come up and uh, that's your first uh, response is the week two response. And once you click on that, you should be able to see the instructions as well as the rubric. And also I have put the letter to Mary Daly and the Adler introduction, the reading material there as well. So that's about it. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation. I think it's going to be uh, pretty intense, um, but I look forward to it. And if you have any questions in the meantime, don't hesitate to let us know. But otherwise, we will see you on Wednesday. Thank you so much.